Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Rusk Rehabilitation Podcast Series at NYU Langone Health. These interviews make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guest, Dr. Ryan Bransky, who is an Associate Professor of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery and Pathology in the School of Medicine at NYU. Podcast listeners have an opportunity to hear many interviews with exceptionally knowledgeable and interesting participants. Each segment is in the 15 to 20 minute range, apart from the introduction of speakers. Occasionally, a pair of longer recordings is featured by individuals who participated in Grand Rounds presentations at the Rusk Institute of Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Health. This podcast by Dr. Bransky is on the topic of the vocal cords, an ideal model for bench-to-bedside investigations. His presentation occurred at a Grand Rounds session at Rusk on September 25, 2019. Dr. Bransky also has an affiliate appointment in Communicative Sciences and Disorders in the Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. He is a licensed speech pathologist and serves as the Associate Director of the Voice Center at NYU Langone Health. In addition to maintaining a clinical practice, Dr. Bransky runs a productive research enterprise encompassing both clinical and laboratory initiatives. His NIH-funded laboratory primarily focuses on wound healing and regenerative approaches to optimized healing in the upper aerodigestive tract. Dr. Bransky is one of only a few investigators to be named a Fellow of the American Academy of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, and the American Laryngological Association. In part one of his presentation, Dr. Bransky began by providing background information on this tiny organ that sits in the neck and is so important for communication and what we're trying to do in the lab and in the clinic to fix this organ when it is broken. In part two of his presentation, Dr. Bransky stated that otolaryngology began shifting from being a much more heavy operative subspecialty to an office-based subspecialty. This also happened around the same time that laryngology shifted from being kind of a a much more operative heavy subspecialty to an office-based subspecialty. And I will say that we do a ton of in-office procedures. And actually the technique that is most used now for gaining access to the larynx was first described by my partner here, Milan Amin, um, and it's called the, the cricothyroid approach where we essentially just stick a needle through the skin above the Adam's apple, and we can inject just about anything. It requires significant anesthesia. Um, patients can't swallow, or they can swallow, they don't have the feedback to swallow. 
Uh, so we asked them not to eat or drink for a couple hours afterwards. But things that we were doing in the operating room uh, for the past 50 years or so are now moving into the clinic, including in-office KTP laser ablations of lesions. But most notably, we can, we can put just about any therapeutic into a larynx. I've had it done. It's not particularly traumatic. I mean, I wouldn't choose to do it like every day or anything, but the worst part is, the worst part is being numb. It, you know, you, you, we rely on feeling ourselves breathe, and when your entire inside of your throat is numb, it's a little disconcerting. And you always can swallow, you just can't feel yourself swallow. Um, and, and there's a little, there's, for me, it was definitely a, uh, it was a definitely a between the years issue. Like you're sitting there still with someone holding a needle in your neck. Um, I did it completely just to see what it felt like, um, just because I thought that was important for me to know what it felt like to discuss with patients. So, um, so steroids seem like an opportunity. And so our lab spends a lot of time right now looking at steroids, and, and we have a really incredible resource here in Michael Garabedian, who's on staff here in microbiology, who is kind of the father of uh, glucocorticoid receptor um, biology. Uh, and so we have a significant collaborative event um, where we are essentially characterizing the acute response to steroids um, in, in our animal model as well as in humans. And again, what's most fascinating is that the outcomes with steroids are variable and it corresponds with what we see in the lab that, you know, we, we do see a nice decrease in some of the Im immunologic effects uh, you know, it's definitely anti-inflammatory, but there's also some really interesting pro-fibrotic actions that appear to be consistent across the class of drugs. And so we're looking at a bunch of different drugs in a bunch of different contexts, but it's not straightforward. It's not that steroids are great and they do X, Y, and Z, and they're, gonna, they're going to decrease fibrosis. And it's, it, it kind of correlates with what you see in the, the hypertrophic scar keloid literature that recurrence rates after direct steroid treatments are somewhere between like nine and 90%. Well, that's not efficacy, that's rolling the dice. I mean, we could like, you know, spit on it or something and probably get the same recurrence rates. And so I, this, is a, this was a little bit concerning for us because we thought we'd optimize, you know, figure out the right drug for the right patient at the right time. And that's, not just, that's just not gonna happen. And so, uh, and I'll talk about this in just a second. This is, a, this is an interesting opportunity for personalized medicine. And I'll show you why. But this is the direction that we're going, that when you get this contradictory data across patients or across cell types, you have to start to think about the inherent phenotype that you're trying to manipulate. And I think we have an opportunity to push our science kind of in a much more innovative way based on screening assays to determine personalized approaches to medicine. We also do a fair amount of, of gene therapy there's some real value in being naive about things. <laughs> because you ask a lot of questions, then people say like, huh, I never thought of that, or why don't we do that? And so I've made a career out of that. Um, um, it's surrounding myself with people that are a whole heck of a lot smarter than me and asking silly questions that lead to really kind of interesting pathways for science. Um, so we're in, we're in the middle of a preclinical study now looking at um, RNA-based therapeutics, we use siRNA, um, and the key for those are always finding the right gene and then delivering enough drug. The beauty is we do have direct access. A lot of the clinical trials that, that are looking at gene therapy 
um, do systemic treatment and there's all kinds of off-target effects and we don't have to worry about that and we've actually um, done due diligence where we've injected a ton of siRNA into larynxes and we see no spread we see no distal organ no proximal organ issues the animals are happy and healthy um, so this what's most interesting is from 2012 there's about 50 clinical trials registered that looked at RNA-based therapeutics. That number is about 200 now. The vast majority of them are funded by industry, and they are for relatively um, esoteric disease processes. And not to minimize these things, but disease processes that have relatively, that the incidence and prevalence are relatively low. And given the data that I've shown, it makes me crazy when I you know, talk to investors or and, and I can't convince them that this is a market that they can make some money in. Um, we target SMAD3. SMAD3 is a, a signaling protein in, in the TGF-beta uh, pathway. Uh, we, we started doing some kind of omic type screenings, looking at kind of what was the ideal target, what was kind of a master regulator. If we knocked it down, could the animals remain viable? Was the tissue gonna remain viable? And SMAD3 is, is clearly what we think to be a master regulator of fibrosis. Um, and we've shown kind of upstream and downstream what SMAD3 does and what knocking it down does. And, and we're also the first lab ever to use localized gene therapy in a preclinical model. We've effectively knocked down SMAD3 in an injury model of, um, uh, in, in, in rabbits. Um, it's also really interesting that we've... Um, Last year, the first uh, RNA-based siRNA um, uh, therapeutic was approved by the FD FDA on Patro. Again, kind of a an odd neuropathy associated with amyloidosis, and it is a system. It's a systemic treatment, and so there's all kinds of off-target effects. And I keep telling people we can treat this directly. We've got this direct access that we can manipulate the local gene environment for an optimal therapeutic outcome. And when that happens, I'll be on an island somewhere. Um, the vast majority of these, of these trials use, they deliver siRNA naked, so without a carrier. Um, we thought about this, and, and one, of our, one of our projects now, we, we collaborate with a chemist down at, at the main campus, Kent Kirschenbaum, who trained... Um, who trained in a lab at, Ber at Berkeley where they made these plasmids to deliver a plasmid DNA uh, that we've now refined for delivering siRNA. And so we have a really nice kind of lipid platform um, that is, um, has been put in humans. And so the path to FDA approval should be much more straightforward. This is a, an optimal uh, delivery mechanism. Uh, you know, once you put siRNA into the uh, in vivo environment, it's you know we're we're pretty proteolytic in general, and so that's why you have to deliver so much drug systemically um, to get enough over to the target organ. Well, we can treat directly, and we have this protective carrier that's going to optimize delivery. As an aside, around the time we started looking at novel therapeutics, and and this I think speaks to kind of the academic process that. When, when you first get started in research, you're really kind of interested in the research for the sake of research. I mean, I, I, had, to, I, had, I had to pay my salary, you know? Um, and so getting grants was of utmost importance. Um, and then, you know, perhaps it's maturity um, and or tenure. 
um, that, uh, that allows you to kind of take a step back and think about the greater context for the work and not just kind of this, this discovery for the sake of discovery, but thinking about discovery for the sake of driving optimal human outcomes. And so one of my postdocs, my former postdocs, became kind of interested in a, a fungal metabolite, cytosporin B, uh, as a potential therapeutic agent. It's now in clinical trials, uh, looking at a variety of different disease models, but it also is an enhancer of a, of a nuclear receptor called NR4A1, which is a prime driver of antifibrotic agent in the Volcafolds, uh, based on some, some data that we've obtained. And so we are moving forward with preclinical trials with cytosporin B as well. One of the main issues is that, you know, when, you, when we look at drug development, it's really easy if you're doing cholesterol, because a cholesterol assay is the same in a human as it is in a mouse. Well, looking at focal fold function in a mouse or a rabbit is very different than looking at vocal fold function in humans. I have this discussion with my 13-year-old, like we'll be at Whole Foods and he'll hear someone talking and they, their voice may be a little off and he'll be like, that, that person's got a voice disorder. Well, it's not really a voice disorder unless it bothers them, you know? It's so subjective and clinically, you know, we have people walk in who frankly sound like hell. I mean, sound terrible and they're only there because their wife made them or, you know, something like that. Their, their primary care doctor wanted them to come. They're not particularly troubled by it at all. And then you see people who come in who perceptually sound normal who are completely devastated by it. It's this like nebulous, hard to characterize thing. And so one of the things that, that we struggle with pushing these things towards the market is the clinical outcomes stink and the preclinical outcomes stink. And they're, they, they stink in different ways. They're different. It'd be so nice if we had some like blood test that we could look at and say, oh, we made them better. I can't get a rabbit to fill out a questionnaire for like, you know, how their voice is impacting them. And I can't take tissue from humans because they kind of like having that bulk full of tissue. And if I take the tissue, they're gonna have then problems that I'm trying to treat. So that's the disconnect that we have, along with the fact that we haven't exactly marketed the implications for these disorders. Um, and, and I'll talk about how we've tried to address that um, as well. We also do a lot of tissue engineering, and this is, um, this is kind of the third area that we're most interested in is kind of a regenerative medicine approach to vocal fold injury. And, and I, you know, I trained in Pittsburgh and there was a guy named Steve Badalak who was the first to describe an acellular matrix, SIS, small intestine submucosa. He also came up with urinary bladder matrix. They're augmenting materials. They're also thought to have this kind of regenerative capacity. And, and so when, when they first came out, we were really excited. And he was at Pittsburgh and I was at Pittsburgh. And we started looking at the potential for putting UBM and SIS into the cords and seeing what happens. And, and the outcomes were not good. They're just not good. They're actually much worse than they are in other tissues in the body. And so it made us actually start thinking that given the unique biophysical demands associated with Volkfeld oscillation, that maybe there's some tissue specificity. And so I've been working with a, a group of engineers who were in New York when we wrote the grant and when we got the grant, now we're in North Carolina, on optimizing and automating the acquisition of a porcine-based uh, acellular matrix derived from the vocal folds, um, which is kind of fun because 
you know, I live in New Jersey. I found a guy. I found a guy to give me pig larynxes. So Frank, I call Frank. I need 14 pig larynxes, and he'd put them on ice, and he'd send them to me. I don't know if that's legal. I don't know. He charged me seven bucks a pop. It was fine. Um, so we, we started kind of collecting porcine-based ECM materials and looking at differentiation between vocal fold cells, dermal fibroblasts, you know, is there tissue specificity? And in fact, there really is. And, uh, and not only that, when we look at macrophage polarization, when we start looking at how cells respond to ECM derived from the vocal folds versus ECM derived from other tissues, the vocal folds is far superior. So we've now automated the acquisition. We use a farmer in North Carolina now. We've automated the acquisition and the process for getting the, the tissue prepped. And we've got a fair amount of preclinical data to support putting these in animals now, and that's where we're going. Whether they need a cell component or not, I don't know, and we're going to do those experiments um, very soon. But what's also along those lines the most interesting is that when we look at something like UBM uh, versus our ECM, there's about 1,400 uh, proteins that are similar. Okay. But there are 550 unique proteins in Volkfold ECM. 550 proteins that drive extracellular matrix metabolism that are present in the Volkfold ECM that aren't present in other tissues. And what's most interesting is that it's just matrix, right? Like this is just essentially collagen. Why is it therapeutic? So the bottom left is, is a picture, and we're, we're very excited about this paper should be in press any minute, so I ask that you not talk about it for at least 72 hours or something. But, but we, were, we were the first to identify what we call MBVs, matrix-bound vesicles, that are little pockets of awesomeness attached to the matrix that appear to hold all the therapeutic delivery. We don't know what's in them. We've isolated them. We've treated cells with them and the cells respond favorably, actually just as favorably to just the MBVs and not the ECM. So maybe we've simplified our delivery that all we need is the contents of these MBVs once we figure out what it is, and we can use that as a therapeutic. But really, for what? You know, to what end? Again, struggling to get this into patients, I thought that this cartoon was particularly appropriate for Rusk, <laughs> from what I hear. If you look at clinicaltrials.gov, there are 114 trials that, that use the word voice disorders. The vast majority of them use them as a bad thing or an, a, a, a nefarious outcome to a trial. There's only a few that actually are looking at them. Um, we've now run two big uh, clinical trials. We ran a, a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized trial of autologous fibroblast transplantation. So we, t we collected post-auricular skin and grew out fibroblasts and then put them back into the cords. We also ran a trial of oral steroids in combined with uh, behavioral voice therapy. And to be honest, both of them, the data were bleh. And it's largely because I think patient populations weren't clearly defined. The industry trial, we had nothing to do with, with the design. The second one, we did. The issue is that we don't have the appropriate preclinical outcomes to then drive clinical outcomes so that we know which patients to use and which outcomes are ideal. We'll get there. We're starting first with developing new preclinical trials. And if anyone has kids, you'll appreciate that those are connects. 
we're very high tech in the lab. Um, we, we're trying to figure out some platform to look at tissue and connects were perfect. Um, we now have really cool custom carriages and stuff. We don't have to use connects. Um, one of the problems is preclinically, we didn't know what to look at. And so we've become kind of interested in biomechanical testing. Uh, we now use a really interesting correlative uh, histology model where we can look at up to 96 different spots along the vocal fold, correlate it with histology. And we think that this is going to be the gold standard for preclinical investigation to justify the transition into humans. The future for us is, is personalized. And when I mentioned that issue, the, the differential response with, with steroids, um, this is a great paper that came out just within a year where they actually found that, that folks who respond to steroids with keloids and folks who don't have very different genetic patterns with regard to glucocorticoid receptor expression. And so this is a particular interest to us that we could potentially predict outcomes and, and optimize and personalize treatment. So the issue is we don't know if the glucocorticoid receptor profile is the same in the Volk folds as they are in the skin. Wouldn't that be ideal that if I could take a small skin test and figure out how they're going to respond? I'm not so convinced that's going to happen. And we may need to get in there to see if we can optimize outcomes. But this is at least kind of where, where we're going. And that's enough of me rambling. My favorite picture is on the bottom right, you know, when we had a little storm here huh, in 2012. And we had to move our lab operations out to western New Jersey. It was a big farm that was actually, on the outside looked like a farm. On the inside was this amazingly high-tech animal facility. Um, and actually all of the primates that come into the United States, zoos, universities, go through this facility. Um, they get their isolation and their immunizations and stuff. But this, I've got, I'm very fortunate to have a great team. Yeah. So much of the function of the vocal cords is sort of the physical oscillatory properties. Yeah. I'm sure if somebody has looked at a, like an artificial vocal cord implantation, yeah, so the University of Wisconsin, you know, I think it was in it was in science or nature or it's one of those that I'll never be in, where they they created, you know, they essentially got the tissue to differentiate in a petri dish, and you know, to be completely honest, it's it's kind of a party trick, and one of the issues is that the group at Harvard was coming up with a synthetic biomaterial to replace the issue is the constitution of my vocal cords is different than yours. And it's certainly different, you know, between me and Kate or, you know, there's so much individual variation, creating a one size fits all replacement fundamentally doesn't work. And we know, I mean, you know, we've done enough in the biomaterial space now to know that synthetic materials are not the answer. Yeah. There's come uh, something about voice therapy. It sounds like that's part of many treatment programs. Yeah. How, how effective is that? Is that standardized? Is that, are there indications for different types? Yeah. So I, I could have put in a whole other thing about you know our kind of work on mechanical signaling and voice therapy. So here's the deal on voice therapy. Voice therapy is incredibly effective when it's done by the right person with the right training and the right patient. Unfortunately, that happens not very frequently. We're very fortunate here. You know, we have a great team of therapists that are really skilled and really great and understand that, you know, like we talked about, that, that postpartum 
uh, phonation drives structure. We know that mechanical signal, we know this is across soft tissues, we know that we know that mechanical signaling drives structure and function. And so we have an opportunity as therapists to both address kind of hab habits in phonation, but also address tissue health. And this is a relatively new concept. I mean, people have long thought that like voice therapy involved, you know, duct tape. When in fact, that's probably much more catabolic than getting people to use their voice well. And we know what, what using your voice well means. But these are, these are relatively novel concepts that certainly haven't spread into the community. And again, we've failed. So Ryan, that was awesome. Thanks for the uh, yeah. presentation. Um, and you know, all the facets you're covering are fascinating. I I'm curious if you guys are also working on a facet that looks at like a frequency analysis for the voice itself. So I think this groboscopic approach is awesome. But are you taking high quality microphones and actually recording the speech at a fixed distance and you know, trying to look at FFTs or something like that? Yeah. So I'll be honest, I hate acoustics. It's one of those things that you know we do clinically because we do. And there are people that are a lot smarter than me in our office that kind of determine our protocols. And there are some decent, relatively new, um, kind of capstrel-based, you know, I don't know what that means, to be honest with you. I can say those words because I know I should, but I don't really know what they mean. NFFTs, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I know it's a trans transformation, but what that actually means and how we use it as an outcome, I don't have the answer. Yeah. But, you know, I'll talk to Dr. Flanagan about getting my colleague, who knows a whole heck of a lot about more about that than I do. Yeah. And sort of relatedly, this focused on structural dysfunction of the cord itself, yeah. as opposed to muscle dysfunction that would move the cord. Uh, do you have a good way to parse voice problems into cord dysfunction people versus uh, related muscle dysfunction? No. No, and you know, even, even uh, maybe 10 years ago, we would do EMGs on everyone, and we realized it didn't change how we treated them. <laughs> You know, there'd be an aberrant EMG. What does that really mean? How do you now what? You know, kind of thing. So we're sticking needles in people's necks um, and getting some information about the integrity of the neuromuscular junction, or you know, but it doesn't exactly change how we manage a patient. And so we realized that torturing patients to no end didn't offer a lot. We lost a lot of patients that way. Um, and so you know, we don't have a great way to differentiate other than grossly. I mean, we can see if full cords move, if they open and close, you know, that kind of thing. But the subtleties related to these tiny little muscles, we don't. And that's, that's why, you know, so my, my partner is a guy named Aaron Johnson, and he's a muscle guy. So I do mucosa, he does muscle, and we occasionally talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. As far as, like, selecting patients that you want to treat, yeah. I guess you would have to be careful on how much you treat because then you have the potential of closing the airway, correct? Like, how much do you treat? Who do you select? I guess. Oh, so you know, in, in patients who have limited vocal mobility, we're also we're always trying to juggle breathing with speaking, and you know that the the surgical team will make have this discussion with them that you know I can I can give you a great voice and you have to breathe out of a hole in your neck, or I can get you breathing great and have no voice. And so finding that balance is always hard and it's different for every, everybody.
Yeah. Could you comment a bit on just the post-operative uh, uh, trauma, just let's say intubation? We have lots of patients who go through the OR. Yeah. I mean, have difficulty afterwards. I, I, sort of overview that. Again, I think that, that that acute response is expected, and I think that the architecture of the Volkswagen is amazing, and it withstands an incredible amount of trauma. And the vast majority of patients have, what, transient 48 hours of a little bit of voice change, a little bit of sore throat kind of thing. Uh, and they bounce back. We tend to think about hoarseness longer than about 10 to 14 days warrants taking a look at. Um, and the etiology of kind of intubation-related uh, hoarseness could be a couple things. It could be the trauma of the tube. There's also it kind of in a physiologic or an anatomic way that doesn't make a ton of sense. There's also neuropathy, you know, affecting the recurrent laryngeal nerve that can be transient or more permanent. Um, and we can, we, you know, we used to say, you know, come back and, you know, it'll come back. I'll see you in nine months. And meanwhile, they can't work and they can't. You know. And we now have temporary options. I mean, we can go in and right in the office, inject a little bit of filler, put a little Restylane in there to make the vocal bigger. It's, they're not going to be singing at the Met, but at least they'll be able to protect their airway and get a decent voice if they need to go out back to work or something. And it, you know, the Restylane lasts about three months, and hopefully that buys us time if it was just kind of a compressive injury that is going to resolve on its own. It buys us a little bit of time, Restylane wears off, neuropathy resolves, everybody wins. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.